The Orioles got a win on national TV on Sunday night and took home the series against the Boston Red Sox in the Little League Classic. I'll recap the entire weekend, get you my three big takeaways having to do with Kyle Stowers being back in the bigs, Jorge Mateo heating up, and Brandon Hyde's decisions getting more and more important as Orioles manager. But that's all coming up on this episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast. You are Locked On Orioles, your daily Baltimore Orioles podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey there, Orioles fans. Today is Monday, August 22nd, 2022, and welcome back in to the Locked On Orioles podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As always, I'm your host, Connor Newcomb. And coming up on today's episode, we are going to recap a weekend series win for the Orioles as they take two out of three from the Boston Red Sox, culminating with a national TV victory on Sunday Night Baseball in the Little League Classic in Williamsport on Sunday night to take two of three and keep themselves right in the mix in the wild card chase. I'll get you my three big takeaways from the weekend having to do with Kyle Stowers, Jorge Mateo, and Brandon Hyde, among others. And then at the end of the pod, make sure to stick around because I will announce the winner of the Cedric Mullins 30-30 bobblehead. But first, just want to thank you for making Locked on Orioles your first podcast listen of the day. Locked on Orioles, free and available on all podcast listening platforms. Make sure you leave a five-star rating and a review wherever you can. And right here on the Locked on Orioles YouTube page, hit that red subscribe button. Thank you so much for all who did to get us over a thousand subscribers, which got us to the point where I could give away the Cedric Mullins 30-30 bobblehead. You'll find out who the winner is at the end of today's podcast. But thank you for making Locked on Orioles your first podcast listen of the day. For your first listen today, O's and Red Sox as the Orioles take two out of three from the Sox over the weekend. The first game Friday night, wow, that was certainly a baseball game. I was in attendance to see the Orioles beat the Red Sox 15 to 10 in game one on Friday. It was 15 to 10 in the sixth inning as well. A wild game in which the O's got three in the second, three in the third, four in the fourth, and five in the fifth. Just dominated Red Sox pitching to take the first game. But the O's offense went silent on Saturday. They tried to rally late, but it was just a little too, little too late as they lost 4-3 to three in Game 2. So the rubber match was Sunday night, the Little League Classic up in Williamsport, Pennsylvania on ESPN on Sunday Night Baseball. And the O's take it 5-3, to three, the big hit coming from Jorge Mateo, the bases clearing double in the eighth inning. So the O's... They do get the two out of three they wanted. You got to keep winning series. They get to 63 and 58 with the two wins, and they sit two and a half games back of actually all three wild card teams right now. The Mariners, Rays, and Blue Jays are all tied in the wild card standings right now, and then the Orioles and Twins are both tied as well at two and a half games back. So everybody in it, and uh, Boston and the Chicago White Sox took a little bit of a step back over the weekend as well. But let's get to my first big takeaway from the weekend. And obviously, you know, the big headliner that we learned on Friday afternoon is that Kyle Stowers was coming back to the big leagues to join the Orioles. And really what we saw from Kyle Stowers is a lot of the different things you're going to see 
from Kyle Stowers on a baseball field. Now, there was a handful of roster moves that were made on Friday to get Stowers to the big leagues. Stowers came up to the bigs along with Nick Vespi and Richie Martin. All three were called up from AAA on Friday. In the moves to create space, Logan Gillespie was sent back down to AAA. Taryn Vavra was sent to the paternity list. Congrats to Taryn and his partner uh, for having their first child. And the third move was the Orioles DFA'd Brett Phillips, who, of course, wasn't really doing much offensively, wasn't playing much, and he has been designated for assignment. Now, the O's did a good job. They were actually able to bring Nick Vespi up, even though it hadn't been 15 days for him, because they put Vavra on the paternity list. That's technically treated like an injury list, so you can then bring up Vespi before the 15 days since his last option. Nice workaround by the Orioles. We expect Vavra to be back by Tuesday's game. Most likely, you'll see Richie Martin go back down to AAA. Richie did not play in any of the games this weekend. But obviously, the big news was Kyle Stowers as he comes up on Friday after he had really been hitting the ball well in AAA. And, and of course, we saw Stowers in those two games in Toronto back in mid-June uh, when the Orioles went to Toronto for the first time to play a four-game series. And Anthony Santander and Keegan Aiken at that time were still unvaccinated. So Stowers was able to join the Orioles at that time. And despite not being on the 40-man roster, he could come up to the O's. He played in two of those four games, went one for seven with a double in RBI and four strikeouts, so he did get his first major league hit, then was sent back down, and we are just now seeing him here too much later. But, I mean, you know, he played in AAA at the end of 2021, spent all of this year in AAA as well, and he had over 500 AAA plate appearances before finally getting to the big leagues for good. And his AAA stats were pretty good this year. 95 games, 407 plate appearances in 2022 with the Norfolk Tides. Hit 264 with a 357 on base and a 527 slugging percentage for Stowers. 19 home runs, 29 doubles. Now, he did have his strikeout issues in those 95 games. 104 strikeouts to 45 walks for Stowers. But that's the kind of hitter he is. He will strike out, and we saw that this weekend. He will walk from time to time, but he will make up for it with the power. You know, all those extra base hits that he had in Norfolk, you know, 51 extra base hits, that makes up for the strikeout. So we got to see Stowers, and he did play in all three games this weekend. Started Friday and Sunday, and then came off the bench as a pinch hitter on Saturday. And all in all, it was a 2-for-11 with two singles, two RBIs, five strikeouts, and no walks for Stowers. Now, a lot of the strikeout issues did come on Sunday when he made his national TV debut Stowers had the golden sombrero, 0 for 4 with four strikeouts in the Sunday night game. But he did come up with two hits on Friday, which was good to see from Kyle Stowers, two hard hit balls for singles. Also just missed a home run on Friday in his first Camden Yards at bat, came up in the second inning, hit a fly ball to the warning track in right field that was caught just inches away from the wall. Thought he might have left the yard, that would have been great. And, you know, he did not start on Saturday against Michael Waka, who's much better against lefties. But he came into the game when the bullpen was in there for Boston. And although he went 0 for 2, he had two RBI ground outs. So, you know, each time he came up, yeah, he grounded out to the right side. But he didn't strike out with a runner on third and less than two outs and got a runner home each time he came up. So he did his job. And 
basically, my, my point on Kyle Stowers is, you know, he, he looked good. He played right field and left field defensively over the weekend. You know, made every play that he needed to make out there. Nothing spectacular, but no errors, nothing bad as well. And so we, we know that he can certainly hold his own in either of those outfield positions. And Stowers can even play center field if you need him to as well. But what we really looked at is we got the Stowers experience. You saw the game where he goes 0 for 4 with four strikeouts, but you also see the game Friday where he hits the ball hard three times and really looks like a power threat from the left side. And even we saw Saturday, he's a guy who, if he doesn't start, maybe gets a tough lefty, you can still bring him off the bench and he can be successful for your team. So all in all, listen, the Orioles were having a bad offensive week. I talked about it on Friday's episode. They bring him up and they score 15 runs on Friday night in his first game. Now, Obviously, they didn't go from barely scoring to scoring 15 runs just from promoting one player in Stowers. However, it certainly helps your lineup to have another guy who hits the ball hard and a left-handed power hitter as well. The O's really haven't had that threat this year. I mean, the closest thing has been Anthony Santander, but obviously a switch hitter, so you'll see him uh, from the right side a lot of the time as well. And Rugnet Odor, in theory, is that, but you know, hasn't really produced at that level. So they need a guy in the middle of that order they can play kind of the old Chris Davis role, maybe not at his peak, but, you know, still in his 30 to 40 home run years. And Kyle Stowers could do that because of the pop in his bat. I just think he makes the lineup better. Even, you know, when he's swinging and missing, he makes this lineup better. He gives them more power. He's a scary hitter to face for opposing pitchers. And I hope he's in the lineup pretty much every day moving forward this season. Just happy that the Orioles finally made the move, called up Stowers. Hopefully, Gunnar Henderson is next. Hopefully, Tuesday night against the White Sox, we see Gunnar Henderson in Baltimore after he had another stretch of great games this weekend, played first base, played second base defensively in Norfolk this week to get more versatility to hopefully get ready for the bigs, but liked what I saw from Stowers in his three games back with the Orioles. But Kyle Stowers definitely produced, but he was not one of the top producers, I would say in the Orioles lineup this weekend. One of those top producers, though, was Jorge Mateo, who frankly has maybe been the Orioles' top producer altogether in the month of August. He has been great, and he continued to be great this weekend for the O's. And coming up next, we'll talk about you know how Mateo fits in in this lineup, how he's had such a great August, and what his status with the O's looks like going forward after his bat is certainly heated up in the second half of the season. But first, got to tell you about betonline.net, your number one spot for all your sports betting needs. Whether it be Major League Baseball or the upcoming NFL season, college football, NBA, NHL, combat sports every weekend, esports, even golf, betonline.net has it all. Number one online source for odds, lines, and games. And BetOnline continues to be the spot for all your sports wagering info from live in-game betting, scores, and podcasts. They have you covered. And of course, with the NFL season quickly approaching, you're going to want to get to BetOnline. So head to BetOnline today or use your mobile device to learn more about the action happening today at BetOnline, where the game starts. So we're talking Orioles and Red Sox as the O's take two of three from Boston, over the weekend, winning back-to-back -back series against AL East opponents after also taking two out of three in Toronto earlier this week. And I get to my second big takeaway from the weekend, and that is Jorge Mateo is playing his way into maybe being the Orioles' starting shortstop on opening day of 2023. And yeah, he's going to need to sustain more of this for that to be the case, especially with Gunnar Henderson coming up, Jordan Westberg looming, 
and the fact that the O's should spend on a free agent infielder this offseason. But if Jorge Mateo is playing like he has been playing in the month of August, he is an incredibly valuable player for the Orioles. And you look at Jorge Mateo, he is top three in war, according to Fangraphs, for the O's. It's Rutschman, Mullins, and Mateo right now. Now, a lot of that is the infield defense. He has been a gold glove caliber shortstop this year. And, you know, it's either going to be him or Jeremy Pena of the Astros that wins that gold glove. And really, it should be Mateo with how good he has been. And a lot of his value comes from there. But beyond that, the bat has finally come around here in August. And this weekend just continued that for Mateo. He goes 5 for 13, starting all three games at shortstop. And he hit for the cycle, not in one game, but throughout the weekend. He had a double, a triple, a home run, and two singles. Six RBIs. Now, did have three strikeouts to no walks. But still, that's not big strikeout numbers once per game. You'll take that from Jorge Mateo, and even one of his strikeouts on Saturday's game, he t- he had a really good take on a 3-2 pitch that was clearly down and away for ball four, should have been a walk, was a called strike three, really changed the game uh, on Saturday. Uh, it was a tough strike zone in that Orioles loss, but I just love what I'm seeing from Jorge Mateo. Yeah, he's elevating the ball a little bit better, and he's hitting the ball a little bit harder, and you know he's making better swing decisions, not swinging and missing nearly as much as he had early in the year, especially on those breaking balls from righties down and away. But this August, I mean, he has been a different hitter. His numbers in the month of August, 23 for 68. That is a 338 average with a 392 on base. He is slugging 618 in August. That is an OPS over 1,000 for Jorge Mateo as we get late into the month of August here. He's got four homers in the month, five doubles, driven in 16 runs. And here's the kicker. Just 12 strikeouts in August. Now, again, it's only five walks for Mateo, but 12 strikeouts in, you know, this amount of games. You know, we're looking at at 18, 19 games for Jorge Mateo and just 12 strikeouts. You will take that every day of the week. And again, he's, he's hitting for more power, which has been huge. And he's coming up with these clutch hits as well. I mean, he really had a huge hit in each of the Orioles' three games this weekend. Of course, you look back to Friday... He got the offense started for the Orioles. They were trailing 2-0 in the bottom of the second. Jorge Mateo comes up with two runners on. He gets a hanging breaking ball, and he just launches that thing into orbit. And because of the new wall, it landed in the first row in left field. But that thing was crushed for a three-run homer. He was so excited celebrating rounding first, he actually missed the bag. Had to go back and touch first base on that three-run homer. But he's just been mashing the ball this month. And then you go to Saturday, and it didn't end up bringing the Orioles all the way back. But the O's were down 4-2 in the bottom of the ninth with one out. And Mateo just rockets a ball off the base of the wall in left field. Ends up being a one-out triple. He scores on a Stowers RBI ground out, and the O's still lose 4-3. But that could have been a hit that potentially started a rally that could have tied the game in the ninth inning. And then, obviously, Mateo has the biggest hit of the weekend. And you could argue... I mean, that's easily a top 10 biggest hit for the Orioles this year and potentially a top five biggest hit for the Orioles this year. Bases loaded, one out in the bottom of the eighth on Sunday night, a 2-2 game in the eighth inning. John Schreiber on the on the mound, who Schreiber has just given the Orioles fits all year. He's been great. And Mateo just lines one down the left field line into the corner, ends up being a bases clearing three RBI double for Mateo that gave the Orioles a 5-2 lead that they would not relinquish in Sunday's win. And he's just coming up with more extra base hits. He's hitting the ball harder. He's playing the same elite defense at shortstop. 
and he's doing most of it out of the nine hole for the Orioles. And yeah, you know, there's been a couple games, even Saturday, you know, he was hitting sixth and he's hit, you know, seventh and eighth sometimes when the Orioles have some guys like Chirinos or Nevin in the lineup, Mateo moves up. But generally when the Orioles are putting an A lineup out there, Jorge Mateo is their number nine hitter. And if you're getting this kind of production from your number nine hitter, you're in a good spot in a playoff race right here in late August. And listen, you know, Mateo wasn't the only guy who produced this week. I mean, obviously, when you score 15 runs on Friday night, if you're the Orioles, other guys have to produce. They had 18 hits in that game. But what was really big for the O's this weekend is it was kind of grouped together of the top of the lineup and Mateo. Kind of 9-1-2-3 and three in the Oriole lineup did it this weekend because you had Mateo have the big weekend. And then, you know, Cedric Mullins, he reached base five times on the weekend, including two doubles, two walks on Friday. You had Adley reaching base seven times over the weekend, had that monstrous two-run home run on Friday night, obviously got in on the action, but also had two hits in the loss on Saturday as well, had a hit and a walk on Sunday. And then you have Anthony Santander, who also had a big home run in the game on Friday night that put the Orioles on top. He had three hits, a double, a homer, four hard hit balls on Friday. Did Santander. He walked on Saturday. He had three hits, including a double and an RBI on Sunday. And it was a double that really should have been a home run in any other ballpark. But that ballpark plays huge in Williamsport. Hit off the top of the wall. Ended up being a two-bagger for Santander. But those guys were swinging it really well this weekend. And when you added Jorge Mateo was on base in front of them a lot of the weekend it led to some more run production for the Orioles. And listen, despite 15 runs Friday, you know they did score three runs Saturday, and yes, they had five on Sunday, which you'll take, but they had two runs through seven innings, and they scored both of those runs in the first inning Sunday and then proceeded to have six consecutive scoreless innings against Red Sox pitching. So there's still some questions in the lineup, and it still certainly needs a guy like Gunnar Henderson, and it'll get better now that you know Taron Vavra is going to come back from paternity leave as well. But to have what you're getting from Jorge Mateo, it can help you get out of a slump. And now the guys at the top are hitting better. And hopefully Stowers starts to swing it and Arias picks it up and maybe Hayes can pick it up. And the offense could be back in a spot where they can really do some damage in this playoff chase. But as we know, as I just said, the Orioles are certainly in a playoff chase. And what that means is things are changing for Brandon High. You know, his first three years as Oriole manager, 2019, 20, and 21, he was managing a horrendous baseball team. Rarely was there a high leverage spot for Brandon Hyde where the game really mattered. Well, now every night it matters. And Hyde is being tested like he never has before. He's made some good decisions. He's made some questionable decisions. But coming up next, we're going to talk about the decisions he made this weekend and how they you know, kind of pan out, but also how they could predict how Hyde does down the stretch and what his status could be as Orioles manager moving forward. So we're recapping a series win for the Orioles. They take two out of three from the Boston Red Sox this weekend, two at Camden Yards, one in Williamsport for the Little League Classic. And for my third and final big takeaway of the weekend, I just wanted to talk about Brandon Hyde because my big takeaway is you know, I'm not on the full side of Brandon Hyde can never do anything wrong. And I'm certainly not on the side of Brandon Hyde's been terrible this year. I think generally Brandon Hyde has done a good job as Orioles manager, especially this season. But my takeaway is we're going to really learn what Brandon Hyde brings to this team. And if he should be the manager moving forward when the O's are World Series contenders, 
in this last month and a half of the season because we saw a lot of moves that Hyde made where he's managing much more like a guy who's in a playoff race or frankly in a playoff game when he's managed some of these games this week. I mean, there was examples in every game this weekend. You look at Friday night. You know, Jordan Lyles comes out, certainly does not have his best stuff Friday. Ended up four innings, nine hits, five runs. Did have five Ks and no walks. But, you know, Lyles had put up a zero in the fourth inning. He was through 89 pitches. And the Orioles' offense went out there and put up a four spot in the fourth. And they had a 10-4 to lead heading into the fifth inning. You're thinking Jordan Lyles, a guy who has routinely thrown over 100 pitches this year. And, you know, you have a six-run lead. Even though he hasn't pitched great, he just had a scoreless inning. You have a six-run lead. He's at 89 you probably, you know, maybe try to milk one more inning out of him, get him through five, and then go to the bullpen to try to save your pen a little bit. But I actually respected the decision of Brandon Hyde to go away from Jordan Lyles. Now, did it work out initially? No, it did not. Because Keegan Aiken, although the O's did make two errors in the fifth inning, including an egregious one by Rugnet Odor, and technically Aiken was not charged with any of the five runs Boston scored in the fifth inning Friday. It was two-thirds of an inning, four hits, five unearned runs for Keegan Aiken in that inning. Despite the errors, Aiken did get hit hard, and he did not have his best stuff. And he gave up a five-spot, let the Red Sox right back in the game. Luckily, the Orioles rebounded with five of their own in the bottom of the fifth in that wild Friday night game. But I liked the decision by Hyde, because many would say, oh, you're up six runs, Lyles is 89 pitches, doesn't matter how bad he's thrown, get one more inning out of him. But Hyde saw that, you know, the, the top of the order was, was still up against Lyles and guys had been hitting him hard. And, you know, his bullpen was fairly rested for Friday. And he felt like if I go to Keegan Aiken, I can get two plus innings out of a guy who I've gotten two plus innings out of many times this year. And he can get us to the back end of the bullpen with this nice, comfortable lead. Now, it was up to Keegan Aiken to pitch way better than he did. And it was up to a guy like Rugnet Odor to play better defense than he did in the fifth inning. But what I'm trying to say is, I think that was a good move by Hyde. It was a playoff-type move. You know, you don't take any chances, even with a six-run lead, because you've seen your pitcher for four innings not have close to his best stuff. You've got a full bullpen. Go to them. And again, Aiken didn't work out, but Vespi, Tate, Perez, and Bautista all pitched well, and they finished out an Oriole win on Friday. But I think that was an interesting look at how Hyde's going to manage these games down the stretch. And then you go to Saturday. You look at Saturday's lineup. Many people were upset by the lineup that Brandon Hyde put out there on Saturday. You know, Cedric Mullins was sitting. People freaked out. Turns out, hey, guess what? He was banged up after fouling a ball off his foot Friday. Was not available for Saturday's game. But you had McKenna and Nevin and Chirinos in the game, which is a tough 7-8-9. But what a lot of people failed to realize is that despite the Red Sox starter being a righty in Michael Waka, Michael Waka is one of the most severe reverse splits pitchers in baseball. What that means is despite being a right-hander, He's actually much better against left-handed hitters than he is against righties. The reason is he has that devastating changeup that falls down and away to lefties, makes it sometimes impossible to hit for left-handers. But for righties, they see that Waka changeup, which is by far his best pitch. They see it way better, and it shows on the stats they hit him way better. So he goes with the righties in the lineup. And yeah, those righties did not produce. Ryan McKenna was 0 for 2. Tyler Nevin was 0 for 2. Robinson Chirinos was 0 for 3. But... What he did do is once Waka came out of the game and John Schreiber, the right-handed reliever, was in there and Garrett Whitlock as well for the Red Sox, Hyde went to the bench. And Kyle Stowers pinch hit 
for Ryan McKenna, and Rugnet Odor pinch hit for Tyler Nevin. And if Cedric Mullins had been healthy and ready to go, he most likely would have pinch hit for Robinson Chirinos late in that game as well. And pinch hitting those guys kind of helped the Orioles rally a little bit back into that game late, despite still falling 4-3. to three. And, you know, it gives you another good look at, you know, how much Hyde's going to look at the splits and how much he's going to be willing to use his bench throughout the year, even if he does start a guy like McKenna. Or I don't think there's many more starts in Nevin's future. He's probably going down to AAA whenever Gunnar Henderson comes up. But, you know, how willing he is to pinch hit for Robinson Chirinos because Adley's still going to need his days off every once in a while, and Adley did DH in this game. But Chirinos is going to catch once a week. But he can't hit. He's hitting 180. So how long do you wait until you pinch hit for him and just burn the DH and, and put Adley in behind the plate? And we're continuing to get kind of a good look at that from Brandon Hyde. And then you go to Sunday where he had multiple decisions to make. Some went well and and some didn't. I think the, the, the one really big decision earlier in the game for Hyde was pulling Dean Kramer. You know, the O's were leading 2-1 to one in the sixth inning. Kramer comes out in the sixth, and he walks the leadoff man, Tommy Fan gets ahead of him, and then walks him on a 3-2 pitch, and he gets Alex Verdugo to fly out, and Kramer's at 80 pitches, five and a third, five hits, one run, four Ks, and two walks, and, you know, seven hard hit balls against him for Dean Kramer, and Brandon Hyde goes to his bullpen, because his bullpen was well-rested, you know, they didn't pitch much on Saturday, because they only had to use Crable and Baker in that loss Saturday after Kyle Bradish pitched into the sixth, and he had him rested. The O's have the off day here on Monday after the game, so he goes to Dylan Tate, and it was the right decision. Tate gets them out of the sixth. He works easily through the seventh scoreless. The O's lead two to one, but then you had, you know, after I think making a really good numbers-based and gut-feeling-based decision because on one side you have the numbers. Dean Kramer was facing the third time through the order, His numbers get worse, like most pitchers do, the third time through the order. You have a rested Dylan Tate, who's probably been your best reliever over the past few weeks. He's a guy who can go multiple innings, so you go to him to try to get through the sixth and the seventh. And it just felt like after that leadoff walk to Pham and Verdugo hit a ball hard, you know, you were getting to Bogarts and Devers and Martinez, who all had had hits off Kramer. You probably didn't want him facing those guys again. So I like that move. But then you get to the eighth inning. And Dylan Tate had worked an inning and two-thirds scoreless. You have CNL Perez warming in the bullpen. And Bobby Dahlbeck is set to hit. Now, I honestly would get behind, you know, Dylan Tate. He was at 19 pitches. So, or excuse me, he was at 18 pitches through an inning and two-thirds. He's thrown well more than 18 pitches at times this year. You got a righty and Dahlbeck coming up with the lefty in the pen. I can get behind him at least facing Dahlbeck and maybe seeing, you know, if they'll bring in a lefty pinch hitter. Well, Tate goes out there to face Dahlbeck. Alex Cora goes to the bench. He brings in Franchi Cordero, left-handed hitter who strikes out a lot, but also has huge power. And you think, okay, so, you know, Perez, your lefty is already warming in the bullpen. This is perfect. Let's go to Perez to get the lefty. But Hyde does not. And Tate falls behind 3-1. and one. He doesn't even throw that bad of a 3-1 changeup, but... Cordero somehow takes it the other way and just over the wall for a solo homer. And that tied the game at two in the eighth inning. That was a big moment. And Hyde, I think we all agree, made the wrong decision. It should have been Perez. And after the home run, home run, Perez comes in and he works scoreless through the rest of the eighth. And then the O's take the lead. Bautista comes in in the ninth, does give up the homer to Bogarts, but locks down the save. And the Orioles win 5-3. But it seemed like an easy decision to bring in Perez once they pinch hit with the lefty. 
and he just didn't do it. And I don't know if Perez wasn't quite ready yet, but at that point, you go to have a mound visit with Tate maybe, and then you bring in Perez. You just got to find a way to get him into the game there. So he made a really good decision in the sixth, not a so great one in the eighth. And I think overall this year, Brandon Hyde has done a really good job of managing this bullpen. And his job has certainly gotten harder since Jorge Lopez was traded and since Trey Mancini was traded. It's harder to put together a lineup. And I think with how great this Oriole bullpen has been of waiver claims, you have to give credit to Brandon Hyde. And you have to give credit to Brandon Hyde for, you know, keeping this clubhouse together. The vibes are good. That's a lot of a 2022 MLB manager's job is to just manage personalities in the clubhouse almost as much so as in-game decisions. And Brandon Hyde is extended through next year, through 2023. He's going to manage the Orioles next season. And it'll be interesting to see because, you know, I've talked about on this podcast, hey, would Buck Britton be the Orioles' next manager? But if you're going to go away from Brandon Hyde, I wouldn't think the O's would go to a, you know, Buck Britton who's never managed a big league game. They'd maybe go to more of a veteran manager to come in and take over a playoff-ready team. Now, Hyde has made some bad decisions. I think he's made mostly good decisions. I still trust him as Orioles manager this year and moving forward as this team gets better and better. But I think what we're just going to learn down the stretch and as we learn this weekend is that we're going to see how Hyde is really going to manage these tough situations. And I think he's going to learn. And he got burned on Sunday. And I think he's going to learn from that decision. And he's gotten burned a couple of times, like Joey Crable staying in the game too long and Thursday's loss to the Cubs. He's going to continue to learn from those decisions. And again, with Jorge Lopez gone, he trusts less of his bullpen. But he's going to have to work through that. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see. But he's definitely ready, I think, to take on this challenge of managing a, a playoff team here down the stretch. But the O's do win the series. Take two out of three from the Red Sox and then get the off day today before the White Sox come in for three games Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. But speaking of winning, we've got a winner to announce here on the podcast of the Cedric Mullins 30-30 bobblehead. The contest was last week. Once I got over 1,000 subscribers on YouTube, which we did, thank you so much to you, the listeners, all you had to do was two things. One, subscribe to the YouTube page. Two, leave a comment on a video from last week about your favorite moment that you've seen at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. And, and thank you all for writing in. We got 174 entrants into the contest to win the Cedric Mullins 30-30 bobblehead. And we have a winner. Your randomly selected winner is Andrew Phoebus. Again, that is Andrew Phoebus. Andrew with last name P-H-O-E-B-U-S. Andrew, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that last name. But Andrew commented, favorite moment for me is either in 2011 when we knocked the Red Sox out of making the playoffs with the last at-bat in the ninth inning. Of course, the curse of the Andino game. He said, or in 2014, attending my first ever playoff game and watch the stadium shake when Delman Young stayed true to his form, swinging at the first pitch. Of course, the Delman double in the ALDS in 2014. So congrats again. To Andrew Phoebus, you have won the Cedric Mullins 30-30 bobblehead. Andrew, to collect your prize, go ahead and send us an email here at LockedOnOrioles at gmail.com. Again, that is LockedOnOrioles at gmail.com to claim your prize, the Cedric Mullins 30-30 bobblehead. Thank you to all who entered. There will be more giveaways like this here on the YouTube page in the coming months to make sure to stick around for those potential 
Orioles giveaways. And make sure to stick around for the podcast, people. We got a team in a playoff chase. They're winning series against the AL East. They got the White Sox up next. And I got a podcast up next. Right back with you here tomorrow. We're doing a little more Orioles draft talk. We'll learn about another one of their pitchers. We're going to learn about Zach Showalter, the high school pitcher the Orioles took in the 11th round. An intriguing prospect. We're going to get more info out of him tomorrow. Plus, preview the Orioles White Sox series. But that's all coming up on Tuesday's episode. Until then, I'm Connor Newcomb. And this has been the Locked On Orioles podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day.